Amoti lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Bore Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Shabbat shalom. If you would turn in your Bibles now to Exodus to chapter 21. Um, this portion, which extends through, I believe it's chapter 24, and actually all of chapter 24, um, is uh, called Mishpatim in the Hebrew. And Mishpatim is the Hebrew word for ordinances, and it comes from the first verse of chapter 21, where it says, now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. Uh, just to go back for a moment, get a context to where we're at, if you recall, uh, in last week's Torah portion, God came down on Mount Sinai, great fire, thunder, smoke, and God spoke the Ten Commandments. The children of Israel were very afraid. They said to Moses, Moses, we don't want to hear the voice of God again. You go up, you get the rest of the instruction from the Lord, and when you come down, whatsoever the Lord has said, that's what we will do. And, of course, we learn in other sections where the Lord said, I have heard the voice of the people. What they've said is a good thing. Yes, uh, you know, I will, I will share the word that way and give it to the people. But he also asked this question. He said, I heard their voice, but oh, if they only had a heart that goes with the voice that says, whatsoever the Lord says, I will do. And fundamentally, and part of what I shared last week in hearing the voice of God and his commandments is, do we really listen to what he says and do we really have the heart to fulfill the words that we said when we said, whatsoever the Lord has said, that is what we will do. And so we began to address that a little bit. That's always the key issue. We hear the commandments of the Lord, but then it begs the immediate question, shall we do what the Lord has said? Now, as a result of that agreement from last week, Moses does go back up on the mountain. He does spend some more time up there. And he comes down with a whole bunch more of instructions. 
And this Torah portion delineates quite a few of those. In fact, this particular Torah portion has more commandments in this portion than any other portion uh, that you can find in all of the Torah. And that is the reason why we nickname this portion the epitome of the Torah. It, is, it contains the written instructions. It contains many commandments uh, and so forth for it. To do just a quick survey of this, um, this portion deals with laws that have to do with the rights of persons. It has to do with the difference between murder and manslaughter. It deals with what we call tort law, damages and penalties associated with doing damages. Uh, it sets forth probably the most profound statement of what law is, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and so forth. And then it talks about restitution. How that when, uh, you know, there's been damages and, or theft or whatever, how the law specifies restitution that is to be done. It then gets into an area of what we simply classify as moral laws, laws of morality. And uh, it will eventually make its way all the way over to a reminder about Sabbath and the annual festivals. So there's quite a bit of instruction with regard to the law that's right here in this Torah portion. You could pick any one of these areas and begin to focus from this point into a whole series of instructions that have to do with it. Now, uh, in times past, I have always uh, jumped on this first section um, because it's initiated here, but it's discussed even further by Moses and other places, and that's true of most of these commandments. And I want to read this first element, this first written law that Moses came down to, because we have an argument today, and it's being made both by some New Covenant brethren, as well as made by unbelievers, that the laws and the commandments that God gave here are irrelevant, that they're not applicable anymore, and that our modern state of the world renders them essentially not applicable, useless, not wise, uh, and we should bypass them, skip them, forget them, move on to, because we're smarter now, because of whatever has happened historically. So let me read to you this very first of the written ordinances that Moses came down after they heard the Ten Commandments. So in chapter 21, beginning at verse 2, it says, If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh year he should go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door, the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him permanently." Rather interesting law. 
And of course, the first argument that's made is, well, we don't have slavery anymore. So this is never going to be happening. And secondly, there's this kind of a, a grating argument that says, wait, wait a minute, if you, if you get a wife while you're a servant, your wife and your children belong to you, why would they stay with the master? You know, why, why would that happen? And so because there's enough of these questions about it, they say this is an excellent example of an archaic law that has nothing to do with what we do today, and therefore, whatever the truth of this is, is not applicable to us any further. Now, for those of you who have learned about the Torah, you know that there are four levels to the Torah. We have taught this to you before. There's the Peshat level, which is the plain sense of the text. There is the remez level, which is there's a hint of something else, that there's a whole other topic being addressed. And usually the hint level has something to do with the Messiah and Messiah King and, and, and his work. And then there is the drosh level, the, where we, in, in the course of study, we, we extrapolate truths and principles Truths and principles that remain true for all situations, not just this situation. And then finally, we have what we call the sowed level, the mysterious level, which gets into even deeper things that are very powerful spiritual things because we, as a result of being believers and God is a spirit, we, we learn about the spiritual world and how it's different from the natural world where we get into immortality instead of mortality and, and other things like that. What the critics of this scripture do is they simply look at the Peshat level or the literalist of this level and completely miss the other three levels. Fail to understand properly uh, for it. Let me give you kind of a, a dumb and simple example of kind of what I'm talking about. Let's say that I have a golf ball and it qualifies as a ball. But, by the way, I have this golf ball, and, but I don't have a golf course to play on. I don't have any golf clubs uh, to play golf with. I don't have the cleated shoes. I don't have the lavender polo shirt that you, know, you play golf in. I don't have the cute French cap. And I don't have the golf bag and the cart that you pull along behind. I don't even have a golf cart. I don't have all of those other things that go with playing golf, but I got a golf ball. Now, as a result of not having all those other things, are we then going to stand up and say, this golf ball really doesn't exist? Would we go so far as to say, nope, the golf ball is not real, it does not exist? Well, obviously we wouldn't do that, because despite you don't have the other things to play golf with, that doesn't change the fact that this is a golf ball. All right, are you with me? Now, what has been described in this first law is elaborated on elsewhere in Scripture. Let me tell you elsewhere in Scripture what essentially we're talking about. This is called the law of the bondservant. You see, the idea is that, that most people, when they serve, it's they're compelled to do so. They have a striking need. 
and they have to submit themselves to being a servant. They don't get the benefits of being a free man or a master because they don't have the resources to be able to meet the needs of their life or others, so they have to submit themselves into service. And this was the case in Israel, and the reason why this law was established, just like we have laws today about people that are in need and, and things like that. They made a law and gave it to Israel that said, if you have your neighbor is in need, he can sell himself to someone who has the means and become a servant and receive a certain value for that. And that's how he provides the necessary means and resources for himself and for his family. By the way, it's not a whole lot different than you who have, are not independently wealthy and rich, who must submit yourselves to an employer who you render with the honor of being a master, <laughs> and you become a servant to them. Now, we call it employment and work. And by the way, there's laws, employment laws, about what the master can and what are the limits as to what he can do with an employee and what he can't do with an employee. He can't harm him, harass him, uh, you know, he, he has to give him a, 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 a non-hostile work environment so he can accomplish his work, so he can be compensated. And we have all kinds of laws about how much they should be compensated. In fact, in our nation right now, they're arguing over whether or not we should have a $15 an hour minimum wage. Now, if you can see the wisdom of having employment laws for people who don't have the means that submit themselves to service so they can get the means to take care of their families and the rules for employers, masters over them, if you can see the wisdom in those, then why is it you don't see the wisdom in this law? This was the primary employment law of all of Israel. There were some people who had means, they had resources, and to accomplish things, they would hire other persons. But there were specific laws, limitation, limitations to how long you could hire them for, how much you could put them in, and things like they have to eat the same food that your children eat, they can't eat something less, that the master can supply and give things to them, but we always have to remember they belong to the master to begin with. For example, if you come to work for me, I'm going to provide a desk for you to work at, a computer for you to work at. By the way, when you get up and you leave, the computer's still mine, the desk is still mine. Doesn't belong to you. I don't care if you did work with it. I don't care if you used it every day. It's not yours. And that's essentially what is at stake here, some basic rules of employment. Now, what would be the test at the end was, if all of a sudden his whole life and his family was nurtured up into this situation, he was free to go, but as you can imagine, a lot of men wouldn't leave if they had gotten married and had children and, and all of that had been provided by the master and master's house. They had provided all that. They didn't want to leave. And so what they had to do was they had to make a testimony for the reason of love of my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. I will remain in this house, and in fact, I will become a permanent part of this house. And to do that, they would take the man, put his ear up against the doorpost of the house, they'd put an awl 
to, you know, pierce his ear, and they'd put a ring into his ear, designating him as a servant, but now it's really the servant based on his testimony, his proclamation. That servant now is called a bond servant. I am bonded to this house for the reason of love. Now, interestingly enough, not only is this a good example of how employment law works, it's also the very basis of understanding what our relationship is to the Lord when we um, accept the Messiah. When we accept the Messiah, the Messiah gives us life. You know, you didn't have life before, you had death. But he now gives you life. You're, you are free, you, you are alive, you're, you're free from the things. But what happens to us is that we suddenly realize, wait a minute, I wouldn't have had the life if he hadn't done it. And, and since we're commanded to love God, then we realize that what we should do is stay in the house of God. We should be part of his house, not go out and make our own house. Because of what he's done for us. And, and those are the things we love, we want to be a part of. And so we submit ourselves to become, are you ready, the bondservant of Yeshua, the Messiah. Which is the dominant teaching of the New Testament. In fact, the title, bondservant of Yeshua, Messiah, is the one title that every believer is to pursue. And in some of the letters of Paul and other places like the other apostles, you know how they introduce themselves? Paul, the bondservant of Yeshua of Nazareth, called an apostle. Paul preferred the title that he was the bondservant of Yeshua of Nazareth. He preferred that first. And that was far more meaningful to him uh, than being called an apostle. Apostle was the work, but who he is and what his position is and what his life is about is about being the bondservant of God. That's also what this commandment is about. This commandment is about teaching how you take your freedom and you submit it into further service. And what Yeshua came teaching us about redemption is that we're supposed to be taking the freedom that we've received, the freedom to live, as an opportunity for us to make the proclamation to become the servants of God. So really, this commandment turns out to be not only a model for employment law, which, by the way, the principles apply worldwide, and we all agree with them, but it also applies to the very basis of what's supposed to be the relationship that we have in the Messiah. This commandment is very relevant. And by the way, the New Testament affirms this commandment by the testimony of the apostles who wrote most of the New Testament because they all claimed they were bondservants of Yeshua. Therefore, it applies also to us. This commandment is applicable to us. If we are to be the bondservant of Yeshua of Nazareth, then there has to come a moment when you are going to make a public profession. All right? And this public profession needs to go something like this in accordance with the commandment. I love my master. 
I love my wife my master has given me, and I love my children that my master has given to me through my wife. And for the reason of love, I will not go out as a free man anymore. By the way, that is the pinnacle of personal testimony today for a new covenant believer. Wow. This commandment is very applicable to what's going on. So let's go back to the critics who say it's not applicable. Why in the world did they say that? Why do they think that? Because um, as we said it in the um, as we would say it in the old English method, ye are stupid. <laughs> ye are ignorant. Ye do not know what you speaketh. That's what it really comes down to. And you need to be instructed and understand with it. Now let me go uh, a step further. I want to move over to another classic portion of what is given in this, which is you'll frequently hear as the description of the law. Um, in verse 24, well, let me start at verse 23 of the same chapter, it says, but if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And you've, you've all heard that expression as an expression of the law. And yes, it is. What is really being expressed here? It, it, has the law just said literally that if I accidentally poke out your right eye, uh, that for penalty you need to come over and take the same stick and poke out my right eye? No, that is not what the law has said. If I whack you on the arm and it bruises you, do you then get the right, according to the law, to come over and whack me on the arm and give me a bruise? The, um, you do understand the, the, the problem with that because there's no real effective way to actually make it match exactly whatever it was that happened. Um, uh, to be completely gross about the thing, let's say that I get smacked on the arm, but it breaks the bone at the same time it bruises me. Now, you went further, so does that mean I get to break the bone now of you after I bruised you? If you, um, if you remember a classic piece of literature that um, William Shakespeare wrote, he wrote a thing called The Merchant of Venice. In the story of The Merchant of the Venice, there was a Jewish merchant by the name of Shylock, I believe is his name. And there was a trade agreement, and the agreement was, well, you have to do something, and if you don't do it, why, well, you get a pound of flesh. Well, the fellow didn't do what he was supposed to do, so it came down to a, a judgment of that he gets a pound of flesh. And so the Jew, very cynically and very viciously, is you know, ready with the knife, and he's going to take a pound of flesh. Well, then the, the first question is, well, which, where do you take it out? If you get a pound of his flesh, where do, you, where do you take it out? Do you take it out of the chest, the buttocks, the leg, the arm? Where, where, where? I mean, you know, we made this agreement. This is what we say. How do you get your pound of flesh? And then furthermore, the judge says to Shylock, he says, 
you're only entitled to a pound of flesh, so once you cut it out, it can't be less than a pound and it can't be more than a pound. It has to be exactly a pound. You said you wanted a pound of flesh. That's what you get. Not less than and not greater than. So as soon as you get it, put it on the scale and it better match exactly one pound. Well, of course, that's an impossible task to do. And as a result, uh, in the story of the Merchant of Venice, where Shylock is embarrassed and, and put down, and, and uh, it's a very anti-Semitic story, by the way, um, and, um, which is an expression in the old English days of how, what they really thought of Jews and putting them down. And the characterization of Shylock is the worst characterization that you could have of a Jewish shopkeeper or merchant in those days. It was a very slanderous type document. But, but the point about the law, about eye for eye, life for life, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, it, that, that story brought out an interesting feature here. The, the, the reality is here that it can't be taken literal because it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. Because there's no way to exact it uh, to the detail that it's specified. But what is interesting here is that in the actual scripture, in the actual Hebrew scripture, you see where the word it says eye for eye? In the actual scripture, the scribes put a dot right in the middle of the letter, specifically hey, and they make the appearance of an eye looking at you. So they go eye for I that you actually see. And the word ain is the actual word for I in the Hebrew. So it, it's very interesting. I mean, it's when, you, when you see it in the Hebrew, you actually see a, something that's kind of pictorial as well as read the words. And what it comes down to is this. This is what we understand. The value that you see with your eye, what is visible to be the value, is that when you have to make restitution, when you have to match it, it must be something of value that is equal to the value there. And what typically happens in most of the things, we see my bent fender, and I say, I see the damage to my fender, and I think $700 is the same value as that. Value for value. I see $700 and I say, yes, that's the value of my bent fender. So when I fix my bent fender, it'll be $700. By the way, just recently, somebody bent my fender. It cost them $700. That's eye for eye. That's how things work. Um, and in the case of life for life, the law specifies, you're going to love this one, it's called the law of the blood avenger. Um, if you come over and you take, for example, you, uh, um, you were to kill my son or my brother, I have the right to go kill you. Life for life. I have the right. Now, the provision of the law is we set up cities of refuge. If you're in the city of refuge, then I can't touch you. And there were six cities of refuge. 
You see, the law specified and understood that if you could suffer such a loss that you demand you have to have payment. And like in the case of a close family member, if you were the blood avenger and you wanted to avenge the life of, the law said that person has to sacrifice their life for them. In criminal law, there's all kinds of death penalties. You brought about this harm, it costs you life. But there's also a case of that you killed them and it, for whatever reason you killed them. Your life is subject to payment and the only thing that's going to be equal to it is your life. And the law recognizes it, but they also set up safe provisions for, for that. Um, there's a very famous story about a man who uh, did so much harm against King David that he had to flee to a city of refuge. He was under a penalty of death. And he continued to stay under... By the way, the way this would work, you had to stay in that city of refuge until the high priest died. If the high priest died, all, all things are forgiven. You, you can't carry it out. There were, that was another limitation on the whole deal. Well, this man, King David died. This man decided, well, I'll go ahead and come out of the city of refuge. <laughs> and he came out of the city of refuge, but the high priest hadn't died yet. King Solomon ran into him one day. You know, the son of David. And he lost his life that day because of something that was done before. This was more of the improvisions of life for life. You know what? Uh, the world would be a different place if we had these people who prey on innocence. You know, you hear the stories about young ladies being killed by murderers and predators and so forth. It'd be a whole lot different if we gave an offer to the father or the brothers of the person who died that we set up the provision, do you want to go in and kill him? We'll set up the limitations and so forth, and you get to kill him we would see more justice and it would send the message to predators don't do that but that's not what we do do we we don't really carry out life for life oh we say well he's going to be in prison for life nah we know what that means and we know that's not justice but the law really does specify and really does have some solutions to some of these things the, the truth of the matter is we don't really apply it correctly. So those who would be critics, who would say, hey, uh, we shouldn't be doing the eye for eye, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, all that stuff, we shouldn't be doing that, uh, because it really doesn't work. It's not because it doesn't work, we just haven't applied it correctly. Um, they are the same people who stand up and say, now we should have so social justice and we should have equal for equal. Social, what do you think social justice is? It's eye for eye, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. That's social justice. That's, that's the fairness thing. But there's another part of this that a lot of people skipped that Yeshua brought out in when he taught this. In Matthew's gospel, Yeshua is going through a series of major commandments and teaching about them, where he's talking about, you have heard it said. In other words, he was referring to, the teaching you have heard says this. For example, one of the things he said, you have heard it said that you shall not murder. 
But I say to you, he said, that if you hate within your heart, you're already guilty of murder. And what was he really saying? Was he trying to make the commandment of murder to go away from the law? Absolutely not. He was explaining the commandment of the law better. He was teaching it better. Because the truth of the matter is, and this is always taught by very good Torah teachers, that every sin originates from the heart. We covet in our heart before we murder, before we steal, before we lie, all of those things. It originates from the heart. And also, all good things originate from the heart first. You believe God, you love God, then you keep the commandment of God. It originates from the heart. Therefore, Yeshua said, if you could get control of your heart and what it does, then the commandments make perfect sense and you know how to do good. But it originates from the heart. He even brought up this particular phrase here. He said these words. He said, for you have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound. But he went further with something and he said, and in fact, it's right here in the law. Verse 26. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. Wait a minute. It doesn't say that he has to eye for eye. It says if the man is a servant, he goes free. He's released from his service. Yeshua taught that part about eye for eye. He explained that. You have heard eye for eye, but I say to you. And he talked about freedom. About how the law makes us free. He concluded all of his teaching there in Matthew chapter 7 by saying these words. He said, do all of these things. Keep all these commandments in the way I have specified as your service to my Father. And as service to God, what do we get? Freedom. Freedom. Do you know the law is what actually gives us freedom? Today, I drove in my vehicle from my house over here to where the ministry was. And I went through a series of uh, stop signs. Went through a yield sign, went through a one of those lighted stoplight things at an intersection. I had to go through several different speed zones. There was a multitude of laws. Uh, I had to drive in one particular lane. I couldn't make lane changes willy-nilly as I wanted to. I had to basically stay in my lane. If I was going to change my lane, I had to print my blinkers on and make a proper lawful lane change. I had to wait on other cars my proper turn so I could turn and come into the office and park and so forth. I got on my vehicle and I safely got here. And the reason why I safely got here is because I followed a whole series of laws. And not one of those laws, even stop signs, stopped me from getting to where I wanted to get. All they did was make sure I got here safely and correctly. And I didn't hurt nobody and nobody hurt me. And if I live in a world where everybody would follow the law, nobody gets hurt. Everybody stays safe. But when you're in a world where there are no laws... We call that chaos. 
and lots of people get hurt all the time. Now, isn't it fascinating that our Christian friends, my New Covenant brethren who deny the commandments of the Lord, they want the, all of these laws so they can stay safe. They're all for traffic laws. They want them. I mean, you could go up and say, hey, how about we throw out all the traffic laws? You're not under the law anymore. You're a believer in Jesus. Remember? <laughs> You're not under the law. They see the wisdom to follow traffic laws. Why don't they see the wisdom to see God's laws? I'll tell you why. Old English definition. Ye are stupid. <laughs> you have not been taught. You don't understand the law. You've been told by your teachers, the law is no good. Don't follow the law. We don't need to follow the law. And you've bought into a lie. And you're paying the consequences of being lawless. No wonder your life is not working out so good. Because that's what happens when you don't follow the law. Is do good things don't really happen. You know, it's random. It's, it's happenstance as to whether or not good or bad happens. Because there's no rule or order to things. Now, I want to take the last few minutes uh, here about this portion. I want to take you to... What Moses did when he brought um, these laws back down, and there, as I mentioned to you, there's many laws here. And when he brought these laws back, um, it came to the point where he is now going to, let me, let me use the right word here, he's going to authenticate the law. In other words, the people are going to receive the written law now, the Torah. They're going to receive the epitome of the Torah, and they're going to agree. Now, they said they would agree to whatever the Lord said. They heard what the Lord said of the Ten Commandments, uh, and then they agreed that you go up, Moses, you get the instructions of the Lord whatsoever he says we will do, and we're going to reaffirm that. We're going to bring these written instructions down. This is all going to get read to them, and the people are going to then affirm. After it's been read to them, whatsoever the Lord has said, we will do. Okay, so we're really locking down and confirming this covenantal agreement uh, as to what is going to be uh, said and done here that will come to be called the Torah. Uh, and let me find the exact uh, portion that I want. In fact, in chapter 24, beginning at verse 3, it says this, Then Moses came and recounted the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, mishpatim, that we've been reading, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. They said that at the start of this, before they even heard the Ten Commandments, they said it after they heard the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up and gets the written words. They come back down. And he's, they read them to him, and they say again, whatsoever the Lord has said, we will do. And by the way, as last week I shared with you, nobody consulted with you personally about this. You didn't get to be the determinant on whether or not we agree to this deal or not. You're stuck with this deal. Your fathers agreed to this. And as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the benefactors of the covenant that was made, God made with our fathers, you get all those blessings, but you also get all this commitment. You signed up for this. If, and as I said last week, if you deny this and you say, no, I didn't agree to keep all of these commandments. 
I'm exempt from all these commandments. You just made yourself exempt from the Messiah. Because the Messiah is the seed of Abraham and is that covenant that the people made with God. The Messiah was actually dispatched as a part of the covenant with Abraham, the promise of God to provide a lamb of God so that there would be a substitution sacrifice for willful defiant sin worthy of death. Now, we agreed to all of that. We get the benefit of that. You don't get to go back later on and say, well, I kind of like some of the stuff the Lord said, but some of the stuff on here I really don't care for, and I don't think I'll do it. You do not have that provision in this covenant or this agreement. You are part of this covenant, and you got the whole thing. So he goes on to say, verse 4, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, then he arose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings. According to the sages, these young men that is being referred to were the firstborn of Israel. These were firstborn males of Israel. These were the ones that were delivered at the Passover in Egypt. That particular group of young men. They're the ones, the firstborn of Israel, they're the ones who are doing this. Not just everybody. Verse 6, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. This was quite a ceremony. The Torah was given to them. Moses brought it down. He wrote the words in a book, the first writing of the Torah. They decided that they're going to have some very specific sacrifices. They do. They bring young bulls. They bring the firstborn of Israel. They're the ones that offer them up on the altar that Moses establishes. He collects the blood from these sacrifices. Half of the blood is sprinkled on the altar. Half the blood is sprinkled on the people, and now we have a Torah that we've agreed to. This is how the Torah was initiated and given to the people. All right? We all see that right here? Now let me show you what happens when you don't understand what happened, how this gets twisted and turned. And this is what has happened to my new covenant brethren. They misunderstood what happened here. And as a result, it's gotten twisted into something else. If you will, you're going to love this part, uh, join me in the book of Hebrews. For those of you who know my testimony, there's some people panicking at this moment. <laughs> I'm 
I'm going to read to you what the writer of Hebrews says about the incident I just described to you. I just read to you what happened according to Moses. I'm going to read to you what the writer of Hebrews said about that. About the giving of the Torah and the commandments that all the people agreed to. In Hebrews chapter 9, at verse 18, this is what the writer of Hebrews says about this covenant that was inaugurated. Verse 18, therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all of the people according to the law, he took to the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wood and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. That is absolutely a false statement. There were no goats in this sacrifice. It was only bulls. The book was not sprinkled. The altar was sprinkled and the people were sprinkled. Not the book. And then he quotes from Moses at that portion we just read. Verse 20, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Now, that is what Moses said there. That phrase, he quoted that. But what the writer of Hebrews has completely redescribed the entire inauguration. He's completely redefined what happened about what the blood was, where it came from, and where it was sprinkled. Do you think there's the remotest possibility that an error has been introduced into the thinking now? Oh, by the way, it would be a huge error at this point. Because this is the same writer that says the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. By the way, that's a true statement. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away willful, defiant sin that you do. Only the Lamb of God's sacrifice can do it. That, that's a truth. But what he's now done is slurred that teaching with the inauguration teaching, and he says well, the inauguration teaching was the blood of bulls and goats. No, it wasn't. It was the blood of bulls only, and it was done by the firstborn of Israel. That's a completely different thing taking place. It has nothing to do with sins and covering of sins. It's about inaugurating the commitment and the bond of the covenant that we have with the written instructions of God. That we have agreed to receive the instructions of God and be obedient to them. It's nothing to do with salvation or redemption Yet he wants to slur them. And he's completely misrepresented what did the Torah say. Now, I'm looking at this book, and here's what my biggest rub is. If I can just flat tell you, I do this all the time with other teachers. If I hear a spiritual teacher come in, and he claims that God said such and such, and it's completely contrary to what the scripture says God said, I would step back and I would say, you have erred. That is not correct. You can't even repeat what God said accurately. And if you can't even repeat what God said accurately, why would I listen to your counsel on trying to understand what in the world God said? But he's confused about why the blood was sprinkled on the people. 
See, he's thinking, oh, well, that must be salvation. Aren't we saved by the blood? Right? I mean, aren't, isn't the Passover circuit? We're covered by the blood, uh, and that's how we're saved. That's how we have redemption and so forth. But what is sprinkling the blood on top of the people mean? And why was it, part of the blood was put on the altar and part of it was put on them. Why is that happening? What does that mean? It's not about salvation. It's not at all. It's about something even more powerful. We're making a covenant with God to receive his instructions and make it a part of our lives. And when one of, one of the other laws is about laws of altars. Anything that touches the altar is holy. Anything. The blood went on the altar demonstrating this is holy. Why did the blood go on the people? To make the people holy. This is a holy people. What does that mean? This is a sanctified people. This is a people set apart from other people's. You have been set apart to be part of God's family and God's kingdom. You're not part of the world anymore. One of the greatest spiritual lessons we try to teach the believers is when you become a believer in Yeshua and the Messiah, so stop giving attention to, stop putting your energies into the world and turn all your attention and your focus toward the things of the Lord. Stop trying to live in the world and be, have a split personality and trying to serve God. You know, we have all kinds of instructions about, you know, that, that God is separate from the world. You're not to pursue the things of the world. You're to pursue the things of God. And the whole definition of holiness is that in a nutshell. You've been sanctified from all other things. You're now set apart just for the Lord. Um, I heard a, a teacher here, one of the, messianic, the emerging Messianic teachers, talking about we don't do holy things, but things are holy. And that is, that's the right definition. Things that are holy are things that are set aside. When we use the Kiddush cup, you know, Kiddush is a derivation of the word holy. Kadosh is holy. We call it, we're making holy. What do we do? We use a special cup to do that ceremony, that right with, not just a, a, an average day cup. We make a special cup. Why? Because we want to have the symbolism we're trying to illustrate that that cup is set apart from all other cups. It's holy. It's sanctified. The first cup of the Passover is called the cup of sanctification. We make this meal different from all other meals of the year. We separate this meal out from others. The Passover Seder. Kiddush, we make that cup to be sanctified, separate from all other cups of the week. We make Sabbath holy, set apart, separate from all the other days of the week. God has done the same thing with us. He's made us holy, set apart, only unto him, separate from other peoples and nations and tribes and tongues. That was the inauguration ceremony that the Torah gives to us and how we got the Torah given to us. By following the Torah and learning the Torah, we are sanctified and set apart from all other peoples. Now, there are many nations that have many laws. But we have a set of laws that God has given to us that makes us a different people from everybody else. 
when we keep those laws, we're that different people that belongs to the Lord. When we don't keep those laws, we're part of the world. It all kind of comes together, doesn't it? Kind of all makes sense. So how in the world do we have these arguments that says, well, the Torah is not really for us? Well, ye are stupid. That's why. <laughs> let, me, let me just, uh, just to kind of put an asterisk on this, let me read just a little bit further what the writer of Hebrews 6 says next. Let me show you how the air spills over. So I have read to you, um, verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And then he goes on to give some additional, his explanation. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood, air. They did not sprinkle blood on all the furnishings of the tabernacle. We're getting ready to go and see the study of the tabernacle and its construction. Let me tell you what happened with all of the things of the tabernacle. They were anointed with oil. They weren't sprinkled with blood. He, he doesn't even know the difference between anointing of oil and the sprinkling of blood. You see what happens when you don't understand what sprinkling of blood means and you start adapting it for everything? He thinks it makes clean. No, it makes for atonement is what it does. Makes you one with God, holy, is what it doesn't make you clean. It makes you holy. That's a completely different concept. That's the reason why the word redemption is a different word from the word atonement. But they slur them together and they, they can't differentiate between the two of them anymore. Well, they all take blood, so I guess they're all the same thing. Only the problem is, is that when they dedicated the tabernacle, they didn't sprinkle it with blood. They anointed it with oil. He goes further, verse 22, and according to the law, I love this expression, I absolutely love this, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Did you notice the phrase, one might almost say, that should be a dead giveaway to you that he does not know what he is talking about because that is not true in every case. Sometimes the shedding of blood is, has nothing to do with forgiveness and it has nothing to do with cleansing. But he's slurring the two together. Listen to how he slurs it according to the law. One may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. You almost can say it, but it wouldn't be true. Because you don't understand Do you see how a mistake like this can take place? Verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. And he goes on to make an argument that Yeshua took his blood and took it up to heaven, and there he cleansed everything up there. Let, let me just go ahead a step further. I, I'm not going to give you a verse on this, but I'll, you're free to challenge me on this statement. Let me explain something to you all. That in heaven, where God's throne is at, there's nothing up there that needs to be cleansed. So Yeshua didn't go up there to cleanse anything. Yeshua's blood, according to the Passover sacrifice, was poured out to the earth. He did not carry it up to heaven 
to make a ceremony up in heaven. But this writer says he did. Hmm. He can't repeat what the Torah says correctly. He supposes the wrong teaching for the sprinkling of blood. And now he's completely misrepresented the sacrifice of the Messiah. Wow. This does not, in my estimation, constitute the word of God. I liken this more to the error of the teaching of man who thinks he believes in the Lord but doesn't understand what the Lord has done for him and doesn't understand the covenant or how it was inaugurated or what it means. The rest of the book is filled with all kinds of other examples of errors. Now today, even amongst my messianic brethren, amongst my Christian brethren, the words that I've just shared with you about this Torah portion, the actual Torah portion that talks about the things the writer of Hebrews was talking about, I've shown you what the Torah says, I've shown you the error that they've said of it, they still want to defend the writer of the book of Hebrews and they still want to say, oh, we, we need to keep it as part of the whole counsel of God that we give to elevate to the level of being the word of God. And they would impugn me for raising these points. Well, I, my, I guess my only answer in defense of that is, you're stupid. <laughs> I wish you would learn. I wish you'd be a lot smarter about this and that you would know and understand the Torah and the agreement that our fathers made with our ancient fathers made with the Lord, which is still applicable today, which we should still be walking out and living. Amen? Well, that's the Torah portion for this Shabbat. Praise the Lord. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the epitome of the Torah. Thank you, Lord, for the instruction of the Torah. And I ask, Lord, that you'd build within us a love of the Torah, a love of your law, the love of your commandments, that we would have a heart motivated to seek you out and to obey you, Lord, just as our fathers committed us to say, whatsoever the Lord has said, that is what we will do, and we will be obedient. Help us, Lord, to achieve those things. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Uh, this uh, Shabbat, um, I'm going to offer up the general prayers for our assembly. And uh, so, if you would, again, join with me. Let's pray for our brethren and all of the issues that are affecting all of us in our lives and for those that are part of our assembly. Father, thank you again for this assembly and the time that we get to have together um, in fellowship with you. For this Sabbath, for this Torah teaching, the portion, for the worship that we offer up to you this Sabbath day. Thank you again. Lord, you know within this flock of brethren, there are those who have many needs, physical needs, needs related to disease and complications of the health of their life. I ask, Lord, that you would offer your healing touch to them, that you would provide relief to them, that you would assist them and comfort them in that. There are some who are suffering tragic loss, Lord, and we know that your comforter is the only one that can give us the peace that passes understanding. I pray for them, Lord. 
And I ask that you might use your wonderful resource of the Holy Spirit in their life to comfort them, even when others cannot comfort them. I ask, Lord, that you would anoint your people with your Spirit. Pour your Spirit out upon all of us. Strengthen us in our most holy faith. Teach us your ways and how to think the way you think. Help us to make good judgments so that as we go about the fares of our life, we'll obey your commandments. We'll offer and show ourselves as your servants, assisting others, helping others, doing the work of kindness and love of the neighbor, Lord. Help us to forgive those who've sinned against us and transgressed against us. Help us, Lord, to soften our hearts where we have made mistakes against others so that we might go and apologize, make restitution to them. That we would have short accounts, Lord, of issues with others so that our prayers are not hindered when they come up before you and that we walk before you clean and upright. We thank you, Lord, for our redemption. We thank you for the work that Messiah has done. We so much look forward to, Lord, when you will return and establish your kingdom and the issues of the world and the things that we see happening today will be done away with, Lord. And that the old has passed away and the new has come. We look forward to that day and we ask, Lord, if it be according to your will, could you make that speedily and very soon? Thank you, Lord, for our families for the blessings of our children, our grandchildren, our friendships, and all of the relationships we get to enjoy centered around you. Thank you for loving us, caring for us, uh, being interested in us, Lord. And would you stir within our hearts that we would be motivated and interested in seeking out you and your perfect will in our lives. We ask all of this on this Sabbath day in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you very much, brethren. Now we'll have our final blessing and the end of our service. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.